You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Keith Hegart, a civics and citizenship educator and researcher. In our conversation, we explore civics and citizenship education in schools. That is, the way that students learn to take part in society. Keith offers insights into a range of teaching and learning approaches including the design of an interdisciplinary and integrated curriculum. Keith outlines how students that grow their own agency might become more active and informed members of their community and take action on things they see as important. We explore a range of issues and potential challenges in this territory. Teachers' lack of knowledge and comfort with civics and citizenship curricula through to students' disassociation, lack of connection points, and inability to link their learning back to their everyday lives. We find out more about a range of citizens, the personally responsible citizen, the participatory citizen, and the justice-oriented citizen. That is someone, such as a young person, who is capable of recognising the causes of inequality and injustices in the world, and then takes action against those root causes. With students often being equal partners in their learning, Keith offers insights into popular curriculum themes and approaches, including experiential and student-led learning, action-oriented learning with impact on the wider community, development of critical literacy and student advocacy for making the world a better place. Here's my conversation with Keith Hegart. So thanks for joining me in our conversation. I thought we could start off by um, finding out more about about who you are, Keith. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Uh, so my name is Keith Heggett, and I'm a lecturer in learning design at the University of, of Technology in Sydney. Um, and I'm, I'm relatively new to the role. I've only been doing it for about a year and a half. Uh, and before that, I was a high school teacher and a, a high school leader uh, in, in almost everywhere you can imagine. <laughs> uh, I like to, to say I've ticked all the boxes of the different sectors that you can work in. So I worked in the Catholic sector. I worked in the independent sector and I worked in the public sector. Uh, and I also worked overseas in, in England, um, which is really where I, I kind of got to grips um, with, with what it means to be a teacher. Uh, yeah, so, so that, that's where I've come from. And what, what um, were you teaching? What subject? Well, the, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question because <laughs> I was originally trained to be an English and a history teacher, um, which is where I've always uh, felt comfortable. Uh, and I only fell into teaching, uh, I call it get falling into teaching, uh, because I was originally going to become a, an aeronautical engineer, and I did two years of, of um, study as an aeronautical engineer, uh, and then decided perhaps that wasn't what I wanted to do. And I, I went across into an arts degree, um, but at that time everyone was saying, oh, don't do an arts degree, you'll, you'll end up you know, working at McDonald's for the rest of your life. 
uh, tack on education to the the end of it. Uh, and and I did, and and I found um, that that was fine. It didn't really light any fires inside me until I picked up a, a part time job working in a in a homework centre uh, in Redfern uh, with students from from really diverse backgrounds. And and for some reason, it just all fell into place. I found that I, I really enjoyed uh, working with the young people. Um, I enjoyed helping them. And I think the thing that really got me um, was that light bulb moment. You know how teachers are always talking about the light bulb moment. I got the feeling that I could, you know, I could do this. I could help people learn. Um, and, and yeah, I, I kind of never really looked back from there. Um, that, that was the, the kind of thing that, that set me on the path to become a teacher. Um, and then, then I graduated, um, you know, so we're talking in the early 2000s here. Um, and I, I was a targeted graduate uh, and, I, and I thought uh, uh, my career was, was, was on a path that was going to send me to WeWar. Uh, I was going to teach English and history at WeWar at Namoy, uh, in the Namoy. Uh, and, and that sounded fantastic. And then I, I went along to a, a seminar um, at university where they were talking about, you know, come and teach in the United Kingdom. And I thought, well, there's a chance. That sounds interesting. So I applied and I was accepted. And the next thing I knew, I was teaching in a, a sleepy little Thameside village um, called Chafford Hundred near Grays in, in Thurrock, um, you know, which, which was wonderful. <laughs> you know, so I did the, the, the traditional, I'm only going to spend a year overseas. Uh, I'll do the working holiday kind of thing. Uh, then I'll come back and I'll, I'll go back to teaching in, in the country. Um, but at the end of every year, they just kept promoting me. Um, so after five years, I was the uh, assistant principal at this school. Uh, and, and the school had grown with me. Um, when, it, when I started there, there was only year seven. Uh, and by the time I left, we were pretty much full. Um, and so I'd grown and the school had grown. Uh, and the, and the, the school's great claim to fame and the thing that um, really intrigued me uh, well, there were, there were two things that it was trying to do differently. It, it, it called itself uh, the school for the future. Um, not a school of the future, but a school for the future. Uh, and it was one of the very first schools to have uh, a laptop program. Um, so back in 2003, you know, every child in the school had a laptop and they actually um, uh, charged their laptops in their lockers. These lockers had special connections. It, it was pretty groundbreaking at the time. Uh, and the other thing that was fascinating was that we taught an integrated curriculum. Um, and of course, you know, primary teachers have been teaching an integrated or an interdisciplinary curriculum forever. But to do it in high school, uh, that, that was seen as a bit out there. Uh, yeah, and for, so I, I, but for what for those people that are not teachers, what does that mean? What's integrated yeah. curriculum? So instead of just teaching English and history, I taught all of the subjects. I taught English, history, maths, science, uh, religion, um, you know, whatever, some, I mean, so everything except design and technology, you know, the, the woodwork, the metalwork, uh, and PE. Uh, I taught it all together. And we often taught it in, uh, well, the, the way it was structured, it was in themes. Uh, so, for example, we would have a theme about, um, great mysteries and myths in the world. Uh, and, and I would teach a bit of science and a bit of history and a bit of geography uh, in the context of themes. Uh, I think we had another theme about Spanish castles. Um, so, so we did the Middle Ages and, and we did a bit of Spanish uh, and we did a bit of geography. Um, and, and it was a, a real uh, challenge to map to make sure we were covering all of the different kinds of uh, requirements from the syllabus. Um, but I, I loved it. You know, I, I felt... You know, I'm, I'm 
a pretty good English and history teacher, but I could bring all these other kinds of knowledge and skills and interests to bear in the classroom. What was um, uh, and, what did you like it so much? I, I, I think um, I think I, I enjoyed uh, escaping the the, the traditional. Uh, KLA boundaries, those key learning area boundaries. This is history and we can only talk about history. Uh, and the freedom to do much, much more than that. Um, and, and I really liked the focus on um, real world opportunities. So, so in year nine, we had this whole term devoted uh, to the students setting up and running their own business. Uh, and, and, and they made calendars, they sold pet rocks. Uh, but but they you know engaged with the whole idea of talking about logistics and operations and marketing. Uh, you know it, it was fantastic, uh, and I've never seen any any schools do anything like that. Um, yeah, a- anywhere else. And so what you you kind of sound like you were introduced to uh, school leadership around that time. Would that be right? Or it, it was one of the great advantages of working in a um, a growing school. Uh, so so when I joined there, like I said, there was just Year Seven. Uh, and I think there was a hundred students and, and maybe eight or nine teachers, uh, you know, and, and we kind of doubled in size the following year. Um, and, and because I'd been there almost at the start, um, you know, I kind of grew into the role. So I became the, the leader for year seven, the year seven head, head of year. Uh, and then shortly after that, I became uh, in charge of years seven, eight and nine. And I had a, a special focus of looking after and, and talking to other people, other schools about our integrated curriculum. Um, and yeah, not long after that, I became um, an assistant head teacher or an assistant principal. Um, yeah, head teacher means principal in the United Kingdom. Uh, yeah, so, so working in, in a leadership role, um, which, was, which was fascinating. And so even though it sounds like it was really enjoyable, you know, you enjoyed it, what do you, you didn't stay there, you kind of moved on and came back to Australia, you know, at some point. So can you, what happened with all all that sort of pathway? Well, I I always wanted to do further study Um, and, and, I didn't want to, to, to go straight into that from my bachelor's degree. Um, I wanted to, to see what it was like to be a teacher, to, to you know, get my, my, uh, earn my stripes as a teacher, I guess is the way of saying it. Um, and I remember that perhaps the most powerful teaching moment in my career that I can remember from, from that time um, in Chafford 100 so, so Chafford 100 was a, a relatively new suburb of a, a, an older area and directly across the railway line, uh, the, the, the railway line that went into London, there was a giant shopping centre called Lakeside. It was vast. It was, it was an edifice, okay? Um, and, of course, you know, teenagers being teenagers, um, they'd be over there before school, after school. You know, if, if we allowed them to go during school, they'd go over there, you know, all of their lunchtimes, um, you know, and, and on the weekends. And I can remember my, my home group. So this is the group that I taught the integrated curriculum. Um, they came in uh, and, you know, when you can just feel that there's an atmosphere in the room uh, and that there's, there's almost that, that electric, something is going to happen. Um, and I could, could tell that there was something that had really upset the class uh, and all of them. And I couldn't work out what it was uh, until eventually one of them said, they've all been banned from Lakeside. I said, what do you mean they've all been banned? Everyone? 
all of you? <laughs> and, and they were like, no, anyone who is wearing a hoodie and a baseball cap is banned from the shopping centre. They just won't let you in. And I said, well, what's that all about? And apparently it's one of the ways that shoplifters were trying to defeat the, the cameras. Um, you know, so they'd, they'd put their hoodie up and they'd put the camera, uh, the, the cap on, and so they couldn't be identified if they were shoplifting. I'm sure that, it, I'm sure that technique was working uh, possibly 500 years ago. With, of course uh... it was. <laughs> yeah, and, and, I mean, don't forget this is the early 2000s, you know, so everybody has got a hoodie and a baseball cap. Mm. Um, and, and they were furious about it. And, and I said, well, have you been shoplifting? And they're like, no, you know, we, we're not shoplifters. We just like to wear hoodies and baseball caps because we're teenagers. Uh, and I'm, I'm like, well, what are you going to do about it? And, and so we organised a protest. And when I say we organised a protest, they organised the protest. So the next day, um, they all came in and, and, you know, the school had a quite a strict uniform policy, uh, you know, blazers, ties, the whole thing. Um, and they all came into my classroom and they put their bags down and then they all took off their blazers and they all put on hoodies and baseball caps. And they were like, we're going to protest. We're going to sit in until somebody notices us and does something about it. And I'm like, this is brilliant. I'm so proud of you. Uh, and, and I was like, okay, well, you know, we can make this work. And I said, you know, we should write a letter. We should, you know, reach out and email the, the local member of council. More uh, conventional, and, and formal still, approaches, possibly. Yeah, I still remember one of the students, his name was Sam, said, it's all right. It's under control, sir. And I was like, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> and then shortly after, the, the deputy principal walked past my, my, my classroom and had a sticky beak and saw them all in their hoodies and their caps. And then the principal came down and had a sticky beak and I got dragged out into the corridor. And apparently there's a journalist here who wants to speak to the class. What's going on? And behind the, the scenes, um, one of the, the students who, who knew someone who knew someone whose parent knew someone else had got in touch with the local newspaper and said there's going to be a protest about this. And I, and, and the, the media, the media were not there just randomly. They'd been no. uh, invited by the sounds yeah, of it. Yeah, encouraged. Uh, and, and they wanted to come and talk to me as the teacher who instigated this protest and was breaching school policy and all of this kind of stuff. And I'm like, you don't want to talk to me. <laughs> this is not about me. This is about the students. And, and the students got a, a great little write-up in the, the local newspaper. And, and that was a really seminal moment for me because it was... That, that's what I care about, that kind of young people taking action about things that they are important. Uh, and, and it kind of fell, fell into place from there. I wanted to, to go back to, to Australia where I could study and look further into uh, young people becoming active and, and uh, taking control of their own destinies in some way. Um, yeah, and, and I'll, I'll be honest, we missed the sunshine a little bit as well. <laughs> Uh, so, so we all came back to Australia and, and I worked, um, uh, on my return to Australia, I worked in, in Western Sydney in the, the, the Catholic area, in the Catholic diocese um, for, for a while at a couple of different schools. And interestingly enough, um, one of the first schools that I worked at um, had what was called not an integrated curriculum, but an interdisciplinary curriculum, which was almost exactly the same thing. Um, and, and they all had laptops as well. Um, so, so I felt like I, I fit in uh, really, really easily um, back into this kind of uh, approach to teaching and learning. Um, yeah, so, so I did that for, for quite a while, um, and, and I left that uh, to become a, a union organiser, um, and, and I started studying civics and citizenship 
um, at the same time uh, at the University of Technology Sydney, and 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 that became this the the focus of my work, um, which is what we're going to talk about, which was justice citizens. So civic, civics and citizenship, what is that? Well, <laughs> um, just to round it, off it this is, first section, you know, without without going into the detail, just to kind of lay term, a lay layperson's definition, possibly, or you know, short version. Yeah. So civics and citizenship education is the way that we learn to take part in society, and the civic side of it is traditionally the really quite formal. Uh, understanding how we make laws, understanding how parliament works, understanding the role of the different levels of government. Citizenship is a little bit vaguer, but it's all those other things, you know. So, so um, you know, the role of, of um, non-governmental organisations or local community groups, uh, the importance of free speech, you know, our rights as citizens. Um, so together, that's civics and citizenship education. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So you spent, you were enrolled at UTS in civics and citizenship. So what did you learn? So the thing that really struck me um, was the gap between what we all said was important about education and what I was actually seeing happening in schools. You know, so civics and citizenship education is central uh, to the Australian goals for schooling for young people. Um, so these are, are documents that are often called things like the Adelaide Declaration, there was a Hobart Declaration, there was a Melbourne Declaration, and just recently there was the Alice Springs Mapartway Declaration. Um, and, and they set out you know, what what schools should aim to achieve for young people, and and interestingly enough, the the most recent version, the Alice Springs Mapartway Declaration, um, actually says it's bigger than schools. We should talk about lifelong and lifewide learning, which I think is is fantastic. Um, but one of the most important goals is the development of active and informed citizens or active and informed members of the community. You know, it's, it's right up there with being literate and numerate, okay? In fact, you know, even higher. Um, and, and to me, that makes sense. You know, we live in a, a community. Um, you know, we live in, in, in a country that, that's a, a liberal democratic state. Uh, we need to know how to be citizens of that state. But that's, that's the goal. The reality couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, so, so when I, I came back to Australia and I was teaching... Um, high school uh it was in the days when we still had the school certificate um which is the year 10 leavers exam back when students used to leave at year 10 uh and and part of that uh students sit an exam in australian history australian geography civics and citizenship and i remember students putting up their hands in the exam saying things like you've taught us history you've taught us geography you haven't taught us any of this civics and citizenship stuff and of course i had but it's so often just absorbed into the rest of the history and the geography syllabus um, or, or spread out in extracurricular or, you know, other kind of school events. Uh, so, so while we say on one hand, this is really, really important, on the other hand, we don't actually encourage it. And unfortunately, the results that we are getting um, about 
young people's understanding of, of civic knowledge and civic literacy actually show this to be the case. So, so let me give you an example. In, in the most recent national assessment program, civics and citizenship tests, um, so these are only administered to a, a, a sample of the population. Not every child in Australia does them. But even so, they're, they're still interesting. About half of year six students met the expected standard. So that's the minimum standard. About half of them met the expected standard for civic literacy. For year 10 students, the other year group that they tested, it was less than half. And, and so to put that into perspective, imagine if only 50% of year six students could read or write. Yeah, or less than 50% of year 10 students could read or write or do maths. It, there'd be an uproar, right? But, but for civics and citizenship, everyone kind of goes, yeah, doesn't matter. You know, what, what can we do about it? That's just the way it is. So would you, and you, so sorry, you go. I was just going to say, and that's not new. It's been the case for, for more than 20 years. There's been no improvement. So what were you, like, when you, when this came to mind or came to light, did, what did you do about it? Like, did you, did you sort of kick into gear or something? Well, yeah. Uh, what I wanted to do, and this became my research project, this became Justice Citizens. I said, the problem is twofold. One, the teachers often, not all of them, but most of them feel really uncomfortable teaching this kind of thing you know there's a lack of teacher knowledge about the the mechanisms and the institutions of of civics education and that's because they never learned it you know when they were at school uh, but the other thing the other problem is that what we often try to teach them is so uh, teach young people is so far disassociated from their own experience that there's no point of connection you know e even with the best will in the world it's not particularly interesting stuff. And so I said, we need to, we need to throw away um, some of our old approaches to, to civics and citizenship education. And we, we should try to do something a little bit more modern, something inspired by some of the things that I was seeing happening around the world at that, that time. Uh, you know, so, so for example, we might talk about things like the, the Occupy movement, um, which, which was uh, people protesting. It started off protesting about Wall Street, but it quickly became a global movement of young people dissatisfied with the status quo. Um, we could talk about the kitchenware revolution in, in Iceland. Um, which where, where the citizens... Of, this is brilliant. This is where the citizens of Iceland were so uh, disappointed um, at, at the conduct of their government and, and their business leaders um, during the global financial crisis is that they, they basically overthrew the government, uh, they put a lot of the bankers in jail, and they said, we're gonna rewrite our whole curricu uh, curriculum, our whole constitution. Uh, and they, they had this huge wiki document uh, where they could all contribute to the, the constitution. I mean, it, it didn't work perfectly well, but gee, it was a, an exercise in, in young people and, and older people taking action. And I thought that was inspiring. Um, you know, and, and there's lots of these. More recently, we could talk about things like the school strike for climate. Um, we could look at March for Our Lives, which is about gun control in the US. Uh, we could talk about Extinction Rebellion, um, who are the climate change protesters. Um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is, a, is an example of, of active citizenship as well. And so what I wanted to do was see if I could develop a, a program of study, a, a learning design um, that was 
related, that was grounded um, in this uh, understanding of young people's action and the things that were important to young people and more important, oh, not more importantly, but equally as importantly, that, that mirrored the way young people uh, showed agency in the world, how they tried to get things done. Um, and so the first thing I had to do was get rid of this to term active citizenship. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it was a, the starting point of my, my conversation, but I realised that it was unhelpful um, because no one talked about citizenship every more, anymore. Everyone just talked about active citizenship. Um, and so I wanted a term that was actually different to what was already being t used. And I came across um, the work of some Canadians, uh, Joel Westheimer and Joseph Kahn, uh, and they talked about three forms of civics and citizenship education. The first one is the personally responsible citizen, you know, the citizen who pays his or her taxes, doesn't break the law. Then you have the participatory citizen. So that's the kind of person who tries to help the community, you know, so they might, um, you know, raise money for a good cause or they might donate their time or volunteer. But the third one and the one that is the, the rarest is this idea of a justice-oriented citizen. Uh, so this is a citizen who's capable of recognising uh, the causes of inequality and injustice in the world and actually takes action against those root causes. Uh, and that one is the rarest and the hardest to do. So I said, that's what I want to do. I want to develop justice citizens, uh, a, a, an approach to teaching and learning that develops uh, justice-oriented citizenship amongst young people. Um, and it was hard. <laughs> so, so I was working in a school in Western Sydney, a Catholic high school at that time. Um, and I managed to convince the principal to give me uh, an hour a week with every student in year nine, um, which I thought was fantastic. It took the place of, of the library lesson, um, which no one was getting anything out of. And, and so we, we established um, Justice Citizens, which was in many ways a a film voice project. Um, so, so I put everything back onto the students and I said, we're not going to look at civics and citizenship as it's described in, in the curriculum documents. Instead, I want you to tell me what you're angry about. I want you to tell me what you think is unjust in your local community. And then I want you to tell other people about it. Um, and so they came up with these incredible ideas. Um, they wanted to talk about refugees, um, which in Western Sydney at that time was a significant issue. Uh, they wanted to talk about climate change and especially um, the degradation of the Nepean River. They wanted to talk about domestic violence. Uh, one group of students wanted to talk about dirt bike safety. Uh, and I was like, is that really a justice issue? And I'm like, well, Keith, actually, you need to take a step back. This is what the students think is a justice issue. So, so let's see what they come up with. Uh, and then I made them go out and speak to the community. So I tried to tear down the walls of, of you know, school and community, and they had to go out and interview journalists. They had to speak to um, community members. Um, they had to talk to... Oh, another topic that came up was teenage pregnancy. They had to talk to young mums about what it was like being a young mum. It was fantastic. Uh, uh, they had to talk to filmmakers about how they were going to make these films. They had to talk uh, to researchers about how they could make sure that their film was... Um, you know, well-researched. And then they had to put it all together in these, these films, a, a short film for five minutes. And we, we actually had a, a big launch attended by the mayor um, that, and, and, and a couple of local members of parliament uh, for the Justice Citizens Film uh, Festival. And, and they all got to stand up 
uh, and show these films. And I still remember the, the, the film about um, the, the young mothers. Um, they were invited along to the, the film festival and they sat there and they watched. And, and at the end of the film festival and the lights come back on, um, they were in tears. And I'm like, oh, no, this has got really badly. <laughs> and, and they came up to the, the students who'd made the film and they said, you know, thank you. No one has ever given us a chance to talk about what it was like, um, you know, being in that situation. Uh, and and not, not, not to pity us, but to just give us a chance to, to have our voices heard. And I thought, you know, that, that's what I want. That's active citizenship. That's justice-oriented citizenship. That's changing perceptions. Um, yeah, and, and so that led to the development um, of, of what I started calling justice pedagogy. Um, this approach to developing active citizenship amongst young Australian school students. So, so during Justice Citizens, um, and, and that's what we actually started calling the lessons, they, they, they were originally called Research Literacy, but during that one hour a week that I had with Year 9, um, we, we changed the name in our timetables to Justice Citizens. <laughs> um, I was in, in a, a couple of different roles, which was really interesting. I was um, the, the university doctoral student, um, but I was also the teacher uh, and, you know, being a teacher has, has certain responsibilities um, that I needed to be mindful of. Um, and, and, you know, I was trying to develop a persona for myself as a researcher as well. Um, you know, so, so I, I found that I, I was constantly code switching between these different roles. Uh, and, and that was actually really interesting because it was uncomfortable for some of the students, um, you know, so, so they would, you know, say things to me like, you know, what's, what's the homework for justice citizens? Or when, when are the tests for justice citizens? Or, you know, what are you going to put on my report for justice citizens? And, and I was forced to say, there are none. You know, you've got to make a film. That's it. Um, and we're not going to mark your film because I can't think of anything, you know, more detrimental to the work that you've done than to give you a mark or a grade. Um, you know, there's, there's no homework. And, and that really upset that traditional teacher-student relationship, um, which, which, you know, caused some consternation amongst the students. Um, but I think it was, it was a, a valuable exercise uh, for me as well, you know, to, to try to experience it from the other side. Yeah. Um, and uh, what, were the, what were the kind of... I don't even know what the list was you were going to oh, summarise. Yeah, so... Or... so Basically, I think the success of Justice Citizens was founded on, on six themes. Um, the first one is it was intensely experiential. Um, it wasn't about reading something and then writing an essay about it. It was about doing it, you know. Um, it, it was also student-led. Now, there's lots of talk about student-centred learning, which is good, um, but this is different. This is student-led. They were the ones making the decisions. Not all of the decisions, but most of them. Um, it was action-oriented learning in the public sphere as well. Um, so it wasn't just something that we did for school's sake. It was something that we wanted to have an impact in the wider community. And these films were shared beyond the wider community. Um, it, they, it was centred on having strong school community partnerships um, and alongside that, the development of critical literacy. Uh, you know, so a real focus on was, was on challenging Miss and disinformation. How do you know that's true? Who did you hear that from? Can you trust that source? Can you find another source that supports that? Uh, but ultimately, the most important thing was there was an advocacy 
element to it. And advocacy for systemic change, uh, to make the world a more just place. Um, because that was what we thought um, citizens should be trying to do. We should be trying to make the world better for everybody in it. Um, and that's why we, we, we had those six themes. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. You've you've done all this research. What have you? Are you at the point where you can have recommendations or findings or conclusions or that type of thing? And if so, what what's what does the future look like for effective um, justice oriented? citizenship pedagogy is that a good question that's a great question (laughs) Um, i wish i had a thought of that question myself um i think civics and citizenship is in a really uh fascinating time and and uh, i i see it and and i've been kind of living this for the last 20 years that it seems to come in waves you know so there's suddenly a, a lot of flurry a lot of interest in civics and citizenship um, and then it kind of dies out for a little bit, and then there's more more interest. Um, and <laughs> it, you know, it started off in about 1999 uh, when people were talking about millennial anxiety, which I just think is the best phrase ever um, about about civics and citizenship education. What what is a citizen in the 21st century going to look like? Uh, and then it kind of died out a little bit. But currently. Um, and this is partly due to some of the, the Australian curriculum changes that are ongoing at the moment, but currently there's a, a real interest in this kind of thing. Um, and, and ACARA, that's the Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority, um, is undertaking uh, a civics and citizenship review, which I've contributed to, um, to give them my opinion of what I think should be in there. And I've seen an example of the draft curriculum. Um, and I, Some, you know, somehow, that, somehow that doesn't surprise me. Um, But the thing that really concerned me about what I was seeing in the Australian curriculum, uh, the draft version, well, there were two things. The first thing was that it was just too passive. Um, There was still too much focus on the history of, of Australian democracy, which is important, but I don't think it's the most important thing. And then there was a lot of conversation, a lot of curriculum guidelines, a lot of suggestions that we need uh, to teach young people how to plan to take action. And I'm like, you're so close. Just get rid of the plan. Let's just get to how to take action. And even better than that, let's not teach them how to do that, but actually let's get young people to take action about these topics that are important to them. Um, you know, so, so that was the first, my first concern with the Australian curriculum. And, and my second concern was that there'd been the addition of lots of reasonable in, in the, the civics and citizenship um, what do you mean? curriculum. So, so they were saying uh, young people should be encouraged to plan for reasonable democratic responses. And I'm like, what does reasonable mean? You know, who determines what is reasonable? Uh, and, and I just feel a little bit uncomfortable that uh, the, the civics and citizenship curriculum, as it stands, might be trying to draw a bound, a boundary around what we consider to be acceptable um, civics and citizenship education practice. And that worries me because I remember so many politicians 
uh, talking about young people protesting about climate change and saying that is not appropriate behaviour. Personally. It's, it's really interesting, these words, um, yeah, like appropriate, reasonable, and how they and how they play out in a context. But mm. I do remember, yeah. I do remember that kind of the commentary around that a number of years back. So yes, yeah. almost a story and, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean the, the the reasonable bit really makes me worried because I think not protesting is actually unreasonable, uh, especially if you're a young person. Why wouldn't you be concerned about the state of the climate and what that means for you and your future and the future of your loved ones? Um, so once again, I, I see that as, as what I call that top-down approach to um, determining what young people need to learn. And, and I think rather than a top-down approach, we need a, a grassroots, uh, a student-led approach, um, one where young people can be seen as equal partners in, in this development process of the curriculum, but more importantly, equal partners in learning to be citizens um, in, in, in Australia today. I mean, the, the thing that really frustrates me about the whole civics and citizenship debate um, is that it's often presented as this either or proposition. You either have young people who are active or you have young people learning about their civic institutions, you know, about the Houses of Parliament and all those kinds of things. And more commonly, that's presented as you have to teach young people about how to make a law and about the three levels of government and who the keeper of the black rod is before you can ever expect them to be active citizens. And I don't agree with that at all. It's because very... too often... Oh, yeah, keep going. <laughs> because too often, that's as far as we get. We don't get beyond that knowledge. We never get to the action. That's just assumed to happen at some point in the future. And You're... it doesn't always happen. It's interesting on a... I, I, you know, without getting too kind of complex, but it's really interesting in like what is knowledge and what is, what does that even mean? And then you can have like, I, I guess with science, for example, you can have all the structures, but then you don't actually get to the guts of what you're talking about. And sometimes when you're teaching science, you kind of ironically, you, the student could get full marks by just almost like dancing around, like by doing a good job at, as to the planning or the almost like the, um, I'm not explaining it very well, but it's it's sort of what you're saying. It's that kind of, you know, being able to list things, but then you're not actually doing anything active. And then you think, oh, it is a, a, a quite a, a kind of eye-watering missed opportunity, really, considering in the territory you're describing, there's, I guess, arguably more at stake, you know, because it's a active, real-world kind of examples, like some of the examples you, you kind of talked about earlier. Yeah, and, and not just that there's more at stake, though I agree absolutely with that. Um, I also think those traditional arguments about the role of the expert are not as relevant in civics and citizenship education either because I think young people are experts in their local communities or in some of these issues. Uh, so, so one of the things that kept coming up um, when I was talking about, uh, when I was doing Justice Citizens, um, was arguments about net neutrality. Um, so, so the young people, the, these 13, 14, 15-year-olds, were incredibly knowledgeable about some of the laws that were being passed in the US at the more. US at that time that were going to limit 
um, the, the independence of, of internet service providers. And I was like, where did you learn this? And they're like, we looked it up. We researched it online. We talked to people. And I'm like, that's brilliant. You know? So, so you know, whether it's, it's in those kind of online, local, global, local communities, or even just in their personal, local, geographic communities, I think young people are in many ways already conversant with the issues. Um, and so, so the role of the teacher changes there. It's no longer about me, uh, you know, seeing them as, as empty vessels needing to be filled, um, but more about me facilitating that kind of um, doing knowledge rather than the, the knowing knowledge, I guess. Yeah, so, so I want to change up that, that old-fashioned idea of, of do this first and then you'll become an active citizen. Learn this and then you'll be able to be active because I don't think it works. Uh, and the evidence suggests that, that we, we're failing at the first hurdle. They're not learning it. You know, remember, only 50% of year sixes are meeting the, the, the expected standard. Uh, and even if we did succeed that, there's still no guarantee that it leads to more active citizens um, because young people in many cases are already going to the active citizenship. So I, I think the best way to encourage young people to become active and informed members of their community um, is by designing learning experiences that allow people to do both of those things at the same time. So in the words of Plato, uh, and I'll, I'll get a little bit classical here, what we learn to do, we first learn by doing. In other words, let's provide opportunities for young people to be justice-oriented citizens while they're still at school. So how does all that play out within the framework of, say, curricula and all other, all these other frameworks, I guess? How do you, well, I guess what are the obstacles to having that, what you're describing happen? What are the challenges? What are the... Yeah, so, so I said at the start um, that there are two reasons why uh, I think we're, we're struggling with civics and citizenship education. And the first reason is uh, lack of teacher knowledge about those, those strict civic kind of things. Um, and the second reason is uh, because the, the civic knowledge is so distant from student experience. And so justice pedagogy um, uh, gets rid of both of those because it says, let's not worry about the civic knowledge until we've, we've done a little bit beforehand. And, you know, if we have to learn it along the way, we'll learn it along the way. Um, and it also uh, gets rid of the, the distance between young people's experiences and the curriculum by saying, no, 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 the curriculum is young people's experiences. Uh, and, you know, in some ways, justice pedagogy is not particularly revolutionary. Uh, any teacher worth their salt will tell you, you know, experiential education works. You know, if you want students, um, you know, to, to, to learn science, like you were talking about just before, an experiment goes a long way further than a picture of the experiment in the book. Um, you know, so, so experiential is not uncommon. Uh, we know that school community partnerships are really, really important for, for good learning experiences and high-performing schools. What, what justice like? pedagogy... Hang on a minute. What, what does that look like? what you just described what can you give us an example yeah yeah absolutely um i think uh, you know and, and there's lots of reasons for it and and this path needs to be navigated carefully uh because there are safety considerations uh but i think we need to stop seeing schools as islands uh, amongst the broader community and rather as as 
hubs amongst the broader community. So, so when I was teaching in the, the United Kingdom, um, another area that the school was really revolutionary was that it was seen as a community hub. Uh, so we had a public library on site. Um, the, the school hall um, was also a community centre. Um, there was talk about having you know, a police station on site in the future. Uh, a medical centre on site in the city. So it's kind of like the school, I don't want to say in the marketplace because that makes it sound, sound very economic, but the school is the centre of the community rather than as a, uh, you know, an outside the community area. And, and what that means in the classroom is, you know, there is no longer just one teacher. Um, you know, what, why shouldn't we, you know, and, and technology gives us these opportunities why shouldn't we have architects involved in design and technology? Genuine architects, not just design and technology teachers. Uh, why shouldn't we have scientists, you know, talking to year 11 biology students, um, you know, coming into to classrooms? And, and even more importantly, why shouldn't we have those students going out to those places? Now, all of this requires funding, time, commitment, uh, money. Um, but you know, if we're talking about the value of, of education, it's, it's an investment rather than an expense. I think justice pedagogy and justice citizens is even more important uh, in, the, in the current day simply because of the fractured nature of civil society and the public sphere. Um, you know, and, and whether that's a, a result of uh, social media, uh, various political approaches, uh, you know, inequality, capitalism, whatever, you know, I'm sure that there, there are as many possible reasons for this as we could name. Um, but I am a firm believer that, you know, if we can recognise that in, in a democratic society, we have a commitment to work towards justice for everybody. And through justice, there comes peace. We can heal these kinds of rifts that exist. Um, and I, I think justice pedagogy uh, might be a good starting point for that kind of healing. In this episode, I chatted with Keith Hegart, a civics and citizenship educator and researcher. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes, including links to Keith's research publications. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.